When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name's Ellis Williams. We're recording this from downtown Indianapolis at the NFL Scouting Combine. It's a Wednesday. I'm joined by fellow beat writers Dan Lobby and Mary Kay Cabot. My friends, how you two doing? I'm good. It's cold and snowy here. It looks like a snow globe outside the convention center. Yeah, it's uh, the combine is always crazy. It's just uh, very fast-paced, lots of interviews, and, and the workouts haven't even started yet. But, yeah, we've been busy. Yeah, like you said, Mary Kay, another busy day, essentially, uh, for Browns Nation. This turned into Offensive Lineman Day. So before we get into all the old linemen that talked and what we learned about them, let's first address the position group as a whole. Where do the Browns need to go? Of course, there were problems across the O-line this year. Baker Mayfield was rushed and felt uneasy. Uh, and then you go into guys like Greg Robinson, who clearly are not coming back with the team. There's holes across the board. The organization has stressed how they're going to address the position, starting with the draft and potentially free agency. Mary Kay, just looking at this position as a whole, what are your thoughts and where are the Browns going next from here? Well, you know, I think potentially they could have three new starters on the offensive line. I don't think that that is out of the realm of possibility whatsoever, and that represents obviously an overhaul. What I think will happen is that they will probably look for their right tackle in free agency, I'm guessing, and that they will then target their left tackle with number 10 overall. There are plenty of good left tackles in this draft. You have to have one. You have to have one of the future. This is the year to get one. There will be a good one available at number 10, or they could trade up or down a little bit, but there will be a good one available to them in the first round of the draft, and I think that they might at least try to take care of right tackle first, and then there are some guards that I, I can uh, talk about that, uh, that I know that are on their radar in the Patriots' Joe Thune and the Redskins' Brandon Scherf. So those are another couple of guys to watch at the guard position. And, and I think the interesting thing, too, is how they kind of build this line financially. Mm-hmm. So if they spend on a, on a right guard, which it was interesting when, you know, Andrew Barry was here before with Sashi Brown, they spent big money to bring in J.C. Treader and spent big money to bring in Kev, really big money to bring in Kevin Zeitler. Uh, you know, you have money tied up now in the Treader extension. Batonio was extended not that long ago. So let's say you pay big money for a guard, Maybe you like having two rookie right to, two rookie tackles that you're not paying that that sort of huge money to. Now, I wonder if that plays into this. But yeah, I'm, I agree. I think we're going to see two new tackles mm-hmm. in some form, and then maybe they decide to fudge guard if they can't land one of those guys, mm-hmm. which I think you can get away with because of the rest of the line. But I, I mean, you could have three new starters there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you guys on that. It, it, there is got to be just some natural worry that builds though when you hear you know, two rookie tackles starting yeah. in the NFL, you know, is, and that has to be something that the front office, is, I'm, court, uh, I'm sure, is aware of. And that's what makes talking about this in the schedule a little difficult. Look, we're at the Combine, of course, free agency hasn't happened, which will happen before the NFL draft starts. Mm-hmm. So these things are difficult to forecast. Do you guys think there's some things that the club can learn this week in deciding whether, hey, 
two rookie tackles makes the most sense? Or are there some things they could find out that, okay, we need to get a veteran on this line rather than going with two fresh guys like that? I think ideally they would like to find a veteran at one of those positions. Now, what you would have to try to figure out is if you go after a a Jack Conklin or a Brian Balaga or somebody like that, one of these top available tackles in free agency, or a trade. Let's not forget a a Uh trade. Andrew Barry uh, came from wheeling and dealing Howie Roseman, and anything is possible. Uh, If they find a tackle that they like, uh, then it frees them up. And I think ideally they would like to have a veteran at one of those positions. I don't think they want bookend rookies. Yeah. <laughs> Baker Mayfield is is vitally important for him to have a good year, and I don't think they want to leave him vulnerable like that if they can avoid it. So those guys are right tackles uh, by trade, but can they play left tackle? Who knows? I mean, they'll have to try to determine if they think that they can uh, and then decide – what they want to do in the draft based off of the veteran they can find. And I think there's a little Joe Thomas effect here because Mm -hmm. Joe Joe came in as the number three overall pick Mm -hmm. and started from snap number one, was great from snap number one, and didn't leave the field for 10 years, played every single snap for 10 years, is going to walk into the Hall of Fame most likely on the first ballot, if not on the first ballot, very close to it. Uh, you're probably not going to get that. If you draft a guy, even at number 10, even if he's the best tackle in this draft, to have that expectation that he's going to step right in and be great from snap number one and play 10,000 snaps. Even though the Browns didn't win many games with Joe here, Browns fans still got spoiled because you could count on that left tackle every single week to be there, every single snap. Mm -hmm. And I think you've got to at least understand that you're not going to have Joe Thomas right away, most likely. You're, you're probably not going to have a first ballot Hall of Famer step in and look like that right away. You can get a good guy, but it might take it might take a little while for him to really hit the ground running. And the other thing is, I think it's hard to project left tackles into the yeah. NFL. It's hard to know if they are going to be wildly successful. A lot of them fail. And it is risky business to spend a very, very high pick on your left tackle of the future only to see him flop. We've seen it happen many, many times before. So, you know, you have to be really, really confident in your ability to evaluate the tackle position. And if you're not good at it or you're not sure, you darn well better have some consultants and some people uh, that can help you uh, determine if this could be uh, somebody that could even be half of what Joe Thomas was. Right, Mary Kay. That's a great point, and that's what makes this draft class really interesting. You can look at it in really one of two ways. Is this a class that's so deep that the Browns can't go wrong at 10? Or, as history shows, as you alluded to, there's really a 50% bust rate really anywhere in the first round, and it's probably a little higher at tackle considering how difficult the position is to play. So do the the Browns actually need to get this completely right or risk finding the bust? Because, look, we've seen mock drafts where as many as three tackles go in the top 10, and there could be five in the first round altogether if they consider trading down. So th- the research here has to be spot on because, as Mary Kay alluded to, the bust rate is high. So what I want to pivot to here is really what the Browns have, are spending this week doing, learning about these prospects. We all spent time today going to different podiums, listening to these guys talk. Um, so let's just jump around. What stood out when you guys were listening to who could potentially be the next Browns left tackle? So, so one of the things about the combine is 
you know, they have all these prospects talking at once, and sometimes you go to just one guy, and sometimes you kind of wander around and see if something something catches your ear. Um, today I, we divided some guys up, and I ended up standing near Joshua Jones from uh, from Houston. And the thing he talked about a lot about was his athleticism. And he talked about being a fit in a zone blocking scheme and even a wide zone blocking scheme. And so, of course, that kind of piques your interest when you hear a guy say that. And yesterday, what did we hear from Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski? They value, I mean, yeah, they value the point of attack stuff, but what they really want is mobility and athleticism. And so when you look at Josh Jones and you look at what a lot of the draft people say about him uh, in mock drafts and profiles, things like that, athleticism, athleticism, athleticism. Has some technique issues, needs to improve. But if you can bring him in and get him on the field, he started a ton of games at Houston all at left tackle. It just makes me wonder if the Browns are willing to kind of bring him in and, and teach him up a little bit to get him to exactly where he needs to be because he is that athletic type of tackle. So that's why I kind of wrote about him today because it just sort of felt like a match. Not that I'm predicting the Browns are going to take him, but at least here in the end of February, it feels like, oh, maybe this guy could be a match for the Browns. Yeah, and the other thing that I like when we're talking to these offensive tackles to see if they can be the Browns' left tackle of the future, I think left tackle experience is important. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you have to prove that you have done it uh, on that side. Uh, because sometimes not everybody can switch sides that easily. You know, you would think you could just, hey, go over there. But it's a lot more complicated than that. And some people can't make that switch and make their brain do that. So um, I like the fact that uh, the guys that we have talked to do have some experience. I, did, I talked to one today that does have some experience playing and starting at left tackle in Andrew Thomas. Yep. Maybe they will have another Thomas at uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. He at might have worn number 73, too. I, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, another Thomas at left tackle, and I asked him a lot about that today. I made it very Brown-centric to, to the extent that I could. Uh, he played at Georgia. He blo- he's already blocked for Nick Chubb, so he already yep. knows Nick Chubb and his tendencies. They've been in contact. Uh, he has studied some film of, of Joe Thomas, and... Uh, and he has experience at left tackle, and he's one of the, I would say, one of the top five tackles in this draft, and somebody that I, you know, I know that is, is on their radar. So uh, I found him to be very interesting. He has experience playing in, in a wide zone scheme, and I think that's also very important. Yeah. He talked about his athleticism, and you know, he's got great size, and he, from a character standpoint, you guys would really, really like him. Really interesting guy. Really cool. I, I actually want to piggyback over that. I think a lot of the linemen we listened to today were really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it just goes to the theory. I mean, I think we can all agree. Offensive linemen are a lot of times the most interesting guys in the locker room yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, and, and the guys we talked to today, Joshua Jones was really, yes. really fascinating to listen to. You, you mentioned Andrew Thomas. Yes. Um, I know Mekhi Becton. I didn't get to hear him, but somebody told me that he was just fantastic. Yeah. For whatever reason, these offensive linemen, and maybe it's because they're – you know, they do the dirty work, and they yeah. aren't always the superstars. They always have the best personalities, yeah, it seems. Yeah, they, they do. And um, with with Andrew Thomas, he's got a decent story, which, you know, we're not going to get into real, you know, deep life stories with these guys too much yet. But, you know, he talked about how he was, you know, kind of in the band in high school. So he'd, like, go over and do sort of the band, pep band yeah. thing and then, you know, and then go play some football. And uh, he plays... Uh, piano wow. and he's into like gospel music and stuff yeah. like that. He was a really cool guy. I enjoyed talking to him, uh, and I think he's somebody that we will see very much on the radar over the next 
couple of months. Yeah, that's going to be an ongoing debate, switching back to the, the left tackle and the familiarity with the position, because there's a couple top tackles that played mostly right tackle in college. Uh, Tristan Wirth, uh, Iowa is one of them, mm-hmm. and then uh, Wills out of Alabama is another one who was protecting Tua's blind side with him being a left-handed quarterback. But focusing on Wirth, he played right tackle, and he didn't really elaborate on why specifically they had him at right tackle, you know, that makes you assume that it's uh, best for the team, coaching decision, things like that. But he really wanted to voice how comfortable he is playing both left and right. He had about like 600 snaps at right and 150 at left. And he volunteered you know, anecdotes about switching from right to left in the middle of a uh, series or in the middle of quarters and drives that he was so comfortable doing both that really sort of, you know, you really don't see that much at the college level, especially power five. It's, it's a high school thing. You flip your best tackle to the, the side you want, kind of tipping off where the ball may be going, but it's still an advantage. And when I heard that they were doing that at Iowa, I found that really interesting. And it, it sort of deaded any doubt that I had about Worf's playing left tackle because Mary Kay, I completely agree that there is a there's a difference between the position and especially considering that being Baker Mayfield's blindside, it must hold priority. But for him to come out and make a pointed effort to address the elephant in the room, if you will, because you know there's not many right tackles selected that high. Left tackle is the premium position. He he did a good job handling that, and to build off your guys' stories about these interesting tackles, you know this kid isn't much different. He was a three-sport athlete in high school, uh, state champion wrestler, state champion shot put thrower. Uh, he watched his single mom work eighteen years at, uh, or sorry, twenty-eight years at their local Target. He's from small town Iowa. She started there when he was sixteen. Grew up with his grandma. You know, so one of those stories where he. He saw her grind, and he credits her with where he found his work ethic. You know, so it, it, it goes to show that, like you said, Dan, there's something about a lot of these linemen that are, they just are such unique people, and their talent on the field matches the people they are off the field. And you have to assume that NFL coaches are finding this out just as quickly, if not much faster than we are. And when you can't say a bad thing about a kid off the field, then the on-the-field stuff gets really, really important because at this point it feels like these GMs must be splitting hairs because there hasn't yet been a consensus that, all right, this is the tackle that you need to get. And that'll be interesting to follow as you know the, the scores come out and we d- learn more about these guys. The other thing to note about Werfs is that regardless of what side he plays on, you know that he's been well coached mm-hmm. because yes. Kirk Ferentz was exactly. the Browns' offensive line coach. Yep. <laughs> you are too young to remember that. This happened probably before you were even born, Ellis. Oh, part but of that I, all-star staff. Yes. He was it, part it, of the, it, it did come up in the... the did it? Yeah, because they, they talked about how I was just a breeding ground for offensive yes. linemen now. So... so I I know Kirk Ferentz because you know, he was on that Bill Belichick <laughs> staff, you know, and uh, great guy by the way. I mean, just one of the most amazing people in all of the football world, uh, and he's a tremendous coach. So you know uh, that Wirfs has been really well coached, not just uh, for the college game, but really for the pro style game, mm-hmm. and you know, pass sets and yep. all the different yep. things that, yep. that he's going to have to know. He's got it in him. Yeah, and he, he, he's ready, and this has been, you know, this has made the rounds on social media and whatnot. So 
uh, worse made news this past offseason when he set the uh, Iowa's uh, hang clean record. He did 450 pounds uh, four times. Now, it, it sounds like I may just be throwing out numbers here, and there's really no way to quantify or understand how much that really is. You can find the, the video on Twitter. It's all over Iowa football, and uh, ESPN College Football put it out. But it's an incredible video, and Mary Kay, it builds off your point of how well-coached this kid is and how pro-ready he really is going to be, uh, not only from a fun- fundamental standpoint, but just from a natural strength. Uh, comparing him to a guy like, let's say, Austin Jackson out of USC, who is a little on the leaner side and more has those the raw skills that you look for, the long arms, the the fast feet, but you're worried about the frame. He played at about uh, 315 pounds, and that's not something you got to worry about with some of these more premier tackles, which is why I have a feeling the Browns, you know, unless you get a King's Ransom, as we always mention, I would be a little surprised if they did move back because I have a feeling, depending on how far you move back, I have a feeling, you know, these top four or five tackles we've mentioned are all going to be gone by between 15 and 20. Mary Kay, I know you, you plan on writing about it later, but do you feel that trading back and staying in the first round is something that this team could do or is sticking at 10 something that feels the safest because of really the plethora of talent that they have and they'll have their choice of it. Well, I think it's one of those things where you will lay the groundwork for any kind of a trade while you're here. This is where it all starts. So you lay the groundwork here. You'll do it again at the NFL owners meetings in March. You will be ready to go. If people start, if players start coming off the board and you start to see that as you're approaching 10, that three of exactly. your guys are available and you can pick something else up, and analytics will be all over this, mm-hmm. of course, uh, you know, then you could possibly trade back a couple of spots, pick something else up, and end up with a whole other player. So uh, I think it's something to keep an eye on. And once you get here to the combine, that's when you start getting the NFL eyes on these players. And that's when we start to the boards start to reset and you figure out, kind of who the top 10 players are going right, to be. Right, great point. You have a much better idea kind of after this. Yeah, this could take care of itself by the time we get to draft day. Absolutely. The, the other piece of this, too, is the intel game. Mm-hmm. And this was something that John Dorsey was really good at, right? Mm-hmm. You go back and, and read about the Patrick Mahomes thing, and yeah. this story's been told over and over again, right? It was Brett Veach who kind of discovered Mahomes and was pushing for Mahomes, but Dorsey was running that draft. And he had all this intel that said, this is where I need to go. Right. I know who wants him. This is where I need to go. He played it perfectly, moved up to 10. Right. And they were able to select Patrick Mahomes. And, and that's something that, you know, whatever you might criticize Dorsey for, he was really good at that. And we need to see if the Browns have that sort of ability because, you know, you wonder if maybe they got out – I'm going to make something up. I'll make up a word here. Out-inteled in that situation. Because hey. maybe they were waiting for Mahomes to fall to them at 12. I don't know. That's uh, completely speculative. But, you know, you wonder if maybe they were on that list. I know New Orleans was a team that was interested, and that's kind of who Dorsey wanted to get in front of. Do the Browns have that ability? Andrew Barry's really young. He's worked with a lot of people. Hopefully he's well-connected or will have people well-connected enough to give him that intel to kind of move up and down and, and get where he needs to get to. Well, I've written... Um... I have talked to Patrick Mahomes' agents, and they really strongly felt that there was a good chance that the Browns would have taken uh, Patrick at number 12. However, 
I think they were more so talking to Hugh Jackson and mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily Sashi Brown. Because I don't think Sashi Brown would have taken Patrick Mahomes at number 12 there. Sure. I think I don't think he had eyes for a first-round quarterback that year except well, for Mitchell. I mean, he traded out of one. <laughs> right. So I, d- I don't know that he would have gone there. But that is what the agents were telling Kansas City. They were like, you've got you got to bypass Cleveland for sure. you got to leapfrog Cleveland and make sure that you get ahead of them because they really like him. And Hugh did like him. And I know that for a fact because I had talked to him back then about that. So this is not just like, you know, 2020 is hindsight. Oh, I like Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it yeah. wasn't that. No, it, it's a fun what if. And, you know, going forward, I say if you got an English degree from Kent State, you're allowed to make up your own words, Absolutely. Man. Out intel. I'm here for that. Absolutely. Out intel. I'm going to get that into my into my uh, dictionary <laughs> now going forward. But, all right, before we get out of here, I want to uh, pivot off the draft and touch on something real quick that we didn't have time to yesterday. Um, Kevin Stefanski's gotten some ring endorsements here. Both uh, the Viking general manager Rick Spielman talked yesterday and Mike Zimmer spoke today. Of course, he fielded a few questions about Stefanski, and he, they both had some nice things to say about the Browns' new head coach. Um, you guys were both there for those. From either guy, what stood out when uh, you watched Stefanski's former bosses uh, talk about the head coach he, that he projects to be? Well, Rick Spielman can't say enough great yeah. things about Kevin Stefanski. A phenomenal coach. I use that as my headline on, on my post. Mm-hmm. He thinks he'll be a phenomenal NFL coach. And I know that he is genuine about that. Those guys are very, very close. Uh, He thinks the world of Kevin Stefanski. They came in together to Minnesota in 2006. So they have spent 14 years together. Uh, Those ties run very, very deep. And he really genuinely believes that that the Browns hit it out of the park with Kevin Stefanski. When it came to Mike Zimmer, I thought he was, I thought he held back a little bit. Yeah, uh, Yeah, totally agree. Right? I think he held back a little bit. He was not as effusive in his praise of Kevin Stefanski. doesn't mean that he doesn't think he's going to be a phenomenal coach because I think he thinks the world of him. But he was not about – but that's not Mike Zimmer's nature either. Exactly. He was not about to go gushing about Kevin Stefanski. He's gone. He's out of the building. He thinks he's detailed, thinks he's organized. But he was not going to say, you know, hey, you know, he's the next Bill Belichick and Cleveland is set for the next – decade. Plus, he doesn't have a, a huge amount of love for the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> he, he just doesn't um, because he's very close to Hugh Jackson. Got it. So I don't think he's, you know, about to, you know, praise, you know, the Browns making this tremendous move and everything like that. I think he really thinks a lot of Kevin Stefanski, but I think he held back a little bit on that. And in his defense, he really only gave one good answer. Yeah, right, during that whole, the whole presser, presser was so uh, yeah. that he likes he Twizzlers. Was, he was swatting questions away yeah. and, and whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, look, these these guys are going to say nice things about Kevin Stefanski. I, I, you know, the the Spielman stuff is interesting because he is sort of a more analytics driven guy than Mike Zimmer is, as we saw during Mike Zimmer's press conference. Right. Uh, but you know, the, it, it's good to hear. It's good to hear guys say that stuff. You, you kind of expect them to say it. Um, but, yeah, lots of praise for Kevin Stefanski. Yeah, and Mary Kay, I want to add to your point about uh, Zimmer being a little uh, coy there. I was talking with the Star Tribune's Andrew Kramer, friend friend of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, uh, <laughs> Star Tribune's Andrew Kramer, who's covered the Vikings for you know nearly a decade now and has a good relationship with both Stefanski and, and Zimmer, of course. And he, he kind of warned me about that before Zimmer took the podium. He goes, you know, Zimmer, he's got love for, for Kevin, but he, he doesn't really – uh, I don't know the exact word he used, but 
he doesn't really have a appreciation for the younger coaching wave going on in the NFL. You know, you think of Zimmer, a guy it took him what twenty plus years, twenty five years to even get a head coaching interview. Uh, you know, his long his rise to become the Vikings head coach is well documented. Um, so for him now to see guys. Um, you know, like Joe Judge and Stefanski, McVeigh, Shanahan. You know, it's it's a new wave. Things change, but uh, Kramer warned me about that. So, um, listeners, we're gonna get out of here. We're gonna have another podcast for you guys coming tomorrow. A quick reminder uh, how you can join and become friends of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. If you aren't already a subscriber, join the community to get our daily insight, analysis, and breaking news from me and the rest of our Browns team. Here's my number: two one six two zero eight. 3965 again 216-208-3965 text me to get a free trial you can cancel anytime but you won't want to so again join us and become friends of the orange and brown talk podcast for myself dan lobby and mary Kay cabot we hope this podcast you hear us and you can out intel your friends <laughs> we're going to keep using that type of terminology here on the orange and brown talk podcast you guys take care thanks for listening